All right, I'm Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking about how to get started with AI in your bioinformatics uh, routine. We've had a couple of podcasts now talking about uh, the benefits and also the challenges with AI integration in our field. Um, and today, we're just going to be focusing on how one would get started, uh, kind of just the conversation of what is the AI starter kit uh, for a bioinformatician and um, how you can start making use of these uh, different technologies in general. Yeah, so I guess the very first thing to do is, you know, you're a bioinformatician and you've been coding away normally and then you hear about this and you think, oh, great, or either you're mildly panicked because you'll lose your job or you think this is amazing. And I'm definitely, in, this is the amazing camp, but yes. you know, uh, you got to start somewhere, and the, probably the very first thing I would do is just sign up to ChatGPT on OpenAI, and then the second thing I do is pay for a premium uh, or plus or whatever they call it, um, which is only like twenty dollars a month. It's, it's not not much at all. It's not available in every country, unfortunately, mm. but um, that gives you like the high uh, higher quality model, uh, which is GPT four. Um, the other thing to try it is actually Claude, which is free at the moment, which is from Anthropic, who, you know, similar guys who were in uh, OpenAI, but they split off. And yeah, so that's step one. But then you're you're left with a prompt, you know, just a text box to fill in. You want, what do you do? How do you solve any bioinformatics problems? Well, what I've found is sometimes you just throw data in there and then it magically does stuff with it. And it's so surprisingly intuitive to use. And I think that speaks to, again, that kind of wild stat. It is at this point likely out of date. I think two weeks ago, you mentioned like a quarter of humanity had already tried uh, or yeah. interacted with these kinds of uh, technologies and applications specifically. And that speaks to just a low barrier to access these things. I could teach anybody how to use this because you're just communicating with it uh, with natural language. And even as you said, like in terms of the starter kit, at base, a lot of these are free, right? You can use GPT 3.5. And I think maybe you, you're limited or, or in some way throttled with your queries and response. Um, but then 20 quid a month <laughs> or $20 uh, for the American listeners. Yeah. Um, and and you're, you're, you have unthrottled uh, access for prompts and queries. And then you get the plugins. Uh, to play with at any point. So even if you're starting with a zero budget and you just kind of want to get your uh, toes wet in the field, you could just go register for both sites, both Claude and uh, GPT, and then your your interface with this prompt that is becomes immediately useful. Um, and then you could start, you know, as you said, asking questions or putting prompts together and uh, trying to solve these bioinformatics questions. And I think even at the start and how I'm using it daily, maybe there's like a couple of categories of how I'm addressing bioinformatics questions that again, are so frictionless uh, that anyone could start using it today. Like just general questions about algorithms. I would, you know, I would definitely maybe err towards the really well-documented and uh, sort of legacy algorithms of, you know, if you're looking at like alignment or, uh, you know, if you want to look at local versus global alignment, I'd imagine you'd be able to work into GPT and say like, explain to me, like I'm 10 years old, the difference between a local and global alignment and where these applications could be. Something like that, where there's a ton of literature, well-documented, 
I'd imagine there is lower probability of crazy hallucinations in something that kind of straightforward, or at least it'll get you into the ballpark of language that's going to be relatively accurate for you to start using. Does that sound fair on your end? Yeah, absolutely. And like an example I had from the other day is that I had a few different names of species, bacterial species, and I just said, what do these have in common? So I was looking at metagenomic data and I was like, well, I, you know, I, I don't know every species there. I don't know every commensal or pathogen out there. So I threw them all in and I was like, oh yeah, these are all gram negative or they're all anaerobic or they're all whatever. And that's just a really nice way, a quick way of just kind of pointing in the right direction. Um, and then you can start asking questions, you know, what, what are they involved in? Are they beneficial? Are they not? What um, mechanisms are they commonly associated with? You know, and that, that can really solve, well, they could reduce your workload massively when it comes to the actual data analysis. And um, yes, it's really handy. Uh, something though that's come out just in the last few days is a chat GPT app for your phone. Mm. And of course on your phone, you've got like, um, you can uh, do voice typing, so you can just talk to your phone like a you know Star Trek tricorder into ChatGPT app, and then it'll go away and it'll get you the answers and results. It's like you know phenomenally useful. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there we're not too far away from then the vocal response back, right? Because right now it's just text to text there, and it's like translating our vocals to text so that you can have that interface. But soon it's going to be like, hey, GPT. Uh, you know, here's my question about biofacts, and then you're having the conversation, and then we're all sort of lunged into the world of her uh, in the movie of like AI relationships with your sort of professor GPT that's been trained oh, on bioinformatics <laughs> algorithms. There, yeah, I guess uh, Alexa and stuff like that have had the, this kind of thing for years, but this is like yeah. you know a whole new level. Um, but yeah, I just to warn you, like ChatGPT doesn't allow you know like love bots or anything like that you know that, that's something they ban yeah yeah um, fair, so fair. You, okay you can't have an ai girlfriend so uh that that's fair that's a good disclaimer to put out for folks if the this is not the podcast for those discussions uh but going into the starter kit so now you, you're at that interface like i said i think that the first uh sort of testing the waters is just asking about bioinformatics questions and like for a student learning these things i, I could see that being invaluable to just have this sort of chatbot to, to work through these ideas of, um, you know, like I said, well-defined algorithms um, that you are starting to integrate into your use case uh, or into your, your practice um, as a student or a, uh, a bioinformatics practitioner kind of just uh, earlier into, into the career. And then I would say where I'm using it more is on the code um, helping in the programming itself, either generating code, as we kind of spoke about a little bit in our our last episode, but even translating things. Like when Mm -hmm. I came into the bioinformatics space, I learned Python first, for for an example. But then there's a lot of code out there that's written in Perl. And it always takes me a little bit uh, of time to figure out what the heck is happening in the Perl code. But now with with, uh, GPT, I could literally copy and paste blocks of code and say, GPT, walk me through what the heck is happening here. And then it can walk me through line by line. Hey, actually, this function's happening yep. doing this. This is being saved to this variable, and this is how it's being manipulated. And so I don't even necessarily need to learn Perl. I could just throw that in there and have it read back to me in human readable language what's happening programmatically. You do need to learn Perl because it is the best language ever. So <laughs> you come from that that era of the Perl era. 
Um, but yes. I, I came into the Python. It's just, it's, it feels that much more human readable uh, and, and maintained to me. But uh, those, uh, those, the, the, is it the Perl modules and in the, is it Pram yeah, is where yeah. they're, they're, they're uh, stored? Those always got me into wow. loops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever it was, I can't those Perl dependencies always hurt me. Um, and that, that, that took me away from the language. But yeah, now I don't have to learn Perl. So what I found useful actually is for architecting uh, software. So I I wanted to build a web app in Python. I haven't done it in years. You know, previously I used Django like 12 years ago or something like that. And I didn't know what, what are the most appropriate libraries and frameworks for building the, an application for my needs. And so I told ChatGPT what I needed. You know, it was like, I need like a web app, you know, which takes in basically has a REST API and just, um, you know, produces not just HTML, but all other formats like PDFs and uh, this kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I gave it the list and I said, I wanted a model view controller language or a model view controller uh, design pattern. And then it went away and it said, okay, well, actually you need these different things, you know, and it gave me like the three major libraries I needed. And I hadn't used any of those before, but actually they're really useful because it's pointed me exactly in the right direction that other people, you know, have solved the same problems in this way. And I didn't have to kind of make mistakes first or, you know, spend days researching how, how should I actually do it fundamentally. It, it, that's another perfect example of where like there, there's a, there's a body of work with some defined best practices and none, no one person has all these kind of running through their mind, but then you get to use this interface to just interact and get that feedback and put that on display as quickly as possible of like, what are already kind of really well-defined ways to approach this problem and what are even the tools and libraries uh, to implement to do it? So it, it works in that guiding force. And um, yeah, I guess the framework I'm using in my head to describe ChatGPT to people, it's like, it's kind of like the 200, 300 level university courses. Like it's going to do solid at that level. Like those, those, those yeah. like sort of undergrad uh courses it's like it's got that body of knowledge really well defined and it's again low probability of trying to making things up just because there's so much content to describe that and those best practices are defined once you start to get to maybe your more esoteric or niche fields um, where there's limited research and they you know maybe it's it's almost working on conjecture and you see it kind of making things up whenever it's like there's sparse information about it so that's where that's where the risks are of things whenever you it's a really specific use case of tools and libraries may not be um, where you want to start using and implementing uh, AI and bioinformatics and, and using your tools. Um, whereas if you are maybe building something at the scratch and you just want to see what are the base building blocks I can be using, uh, I think that's a perfect place uh, to, to start using uh, these kinds of resources in, in your bioinformatics development. But uh, one most one really important thing is actually having a good prompt to begin with, you know, to ask these yeah. questions and to actually extract the data. And so what I've found is that... Um, if you have a poor prompt or you don't use kind of natural English people would normally use, then actually you get poor results out, you know, or not as good results. So, you know, like a normal conversation, I'd, you know, I'd say, please, can you help me with this? And thank you very much. You, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yes. And it's been trained on these bodies of language, which, you know, have all of these niceties and whatever. And so it is important to put them in and uh, studies have shown that you do get better results out if you're, you're a nice to your chat GPT, which is phenomenal actually. And you get better results if you ask it to think about it. And so maybe the second pass uh, gives you better results or even get it to rewrite your prompt even better. 
Um, but what I found is, you know, it's good to give a context, you know, and give yeah. hints about what, what you're working on. So it's good to tell you you're working, say, in microbial bioinformatics or microbial genomics, to give it some context and to tell it, you know, the, the kind of the place where you're coming from, because then it knows what type of answers to give you at the other end. And also to give it a voice as well. You know, you can tell it that uh, I know you're a scientist. Yeah. And so you want it from that direction. And of course, you need to give it enough data then, you know, actual meaningful data if you want, say, to, to start off. And it can take a few iterations, but actually because it remembers everything in the chat, it, you can build it up gradually. Although I find sometimes if you build it up, it can sometimes forget the stuff at the beginning. And mm. so you have to uh, sometimes reprompt it, particularly if you're using the API. Um, so we, which is what I use sometimes for coding scripts. And actually the API now allows you to do ChatGPT4 with a much bigger prompt size, so, or context uh, window, so more tokens more stuff you can shove in, which is really cool, actually. Um, because previously, you could only use 3.5, which is faster, but you know, it wasn't as good, and mm -hmm. all these kind of trade-offs. So anyway, I, I would strongly advise people to um, play around with it and see what makes a good prompt for them. I, I think that's a big point, too, because knowing what a good prompt is and kind of anticipating the response types uh, it is kind of the, the important skill to learn here. And yeah, it's almost like learning how a person's going to respond to you. Like, you know, it's obvious it, you want, it's so my mind is so quick to anthropomorphize what the heck I'm speaking to, especially because it's, you're using natural language, but that is how I'm looking at it. Cause it's uh, a good access point there too, is just trying to use GPT for general writing, not even the code stuff yet, uh, or, um, maybe not yet the hard research questions maybe that we spoke about, but I found that it's really helpful for templating um, written communication of uh, scientific writing. Obviously you can speak to that pretty, yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty in depthly there, but I think sometimes that's often a uh, barrier is when you're kind of staring at a blank screen and you just have ideas in your head. What's wild about GPT is like you throw those ideas out in, in even this chaotic order of bullet points. And you say something like, Hey, help me rephrase this or structure this in the format of a scientific communication. And it'll plot that mm. out for you in paragraph form and string the narrative together to, to uh, a great starting degree or, or great starting point uh, where then you would put the manual edits on top of things. So even just in the written communication, not only scientific, I would even say just like, I use it sometimes when I'm putting emails together, like, hey, can you help me rephrase this to uh, make sure I'm getting my points across really well? Like I'm almost always have GPT on just to, you know, help me correct my language, make it effective communication. Um, mm. And that's a good place to figure out how are prompts being written? How can I add language or add context when it's necessary to get the kind of response that's like most valuable for whatever the use case is there? I particularly like when uh, you have a list of bullet points and you say, you know, reorder these. Maybe, maybe there are topics you want to discuss and it goes away and, you know, it puts them in a much more sensible order. You don't have to engage your brain then, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> very much. Um, but yeah, like a good prompt is, is the key to it. And you have to think about like talking to a child, you know, if you ask, uh, I know your, your kids are too young, but for my kids, yeah. I ask them when they've uh, come home from school, you know, what do you do at school today? Nothing. <laughs> and so you have to ask the right questions. So you say, oh, well, 
Did you do maths? Who did you sit beside? Did you play with so-and-so at lunchtime? You know, yeah. what did you have for lunch? And you have to kind of start teasing it out and then you get all the information. But if you just ask, you know, something bland and generic, you don't get anything out. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you got to ask the right questions. And specify uh, the context along the way. I think that's a pretty good way way to look at it. Yeah, just you're providing all the context. So, um, it will try to fill in a lot of blocks, as, as we said in the, in uh, previous episodes. But if you're really trying to use it for high value stuff or or, or get um, prompt or responses that are going to be um, worth the while, I think adding some context to the conversation. It doesn't need to be crazy, but just some sort of uh, barriers so that it can uh, you know know which ballpark to play in. Um, when it's giving uh, yeah. its response. And you can also have that iterative, like, okay, make this more formal, make this more less, in, uh, less formal, and it'll uh, sort of iterate upon that for sure. And you definitely have to, as a mathematician, you do have to get started with this stuff. If you don't, well, then your job may be at risk because it makes it easier for uh, many people who are, let's say, power users of Excel to do, you know, one level up and do a bit more data analysis and do a bit more, you know, kind of pulling stuff out. And so you have to, you know, up your game as well by using it to, you know, do even better methods and even more powerful code and whatever. And if you don't, well, then you run the risk of just being, you know, uh, obsolete, to be honest. I, I think so. It, it, because it really is becoming a, so quickly becoming such a valuable skill that is transitioning into a necessary skill of how to use these resources. And this is a really good just starter kit. Like maybe in a future episode, we could talk about maybe the more uh, technical repositories of like the auto GPT and things like this. But I think just getting the exposure to these tools to start to figure out how they work and how to interface with them is is so critical. And it's so valuable. It's not like, oh, you got to like trudge through these materials. You're going to see the the value in it uh, pretty straightforwardly as soon as you start uh, interacting with these tools. So the first thing you need to do is, you know, pay ChatGPT $20 a month and you get, you know, ChatGPT 4 and you get Code Interpreter, which is, you know, can do data analysis for you. And also then pay uh, GitHub, or if you're a student, uh, it's free, um, for Copilot and Copilot Chat. Because if you're doing any coding, you're absolutely going to need this. And interestingly, Stack Overflow, which I've used for years, uh, you know, as a place for getting blocks of code, has had a massive drop in traffic. And it seems to be a lot of this is down to ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot, where you no longer need to go and do a Google search. You're kind of searching from within the the Copilot. You know, it's it's generating code you need, and then without you having to go to an external site. So it's changing the way the internet is working. And I know we've talked about it a little bit on uh, previous episodes, but can you maybe describe just briefly Copilot and how it differs from GPT and how it maybe is related, obviously, to the Microsoft universe there, um, the web app versus the Copilot uh, in VS Code? Yeah, when you said universe, I thought, oh, yeah, Marvel universe. Um, <laughs> so so um, it, it runs uh, GPT-4, uh, as far as I know. And... This, this is the first thing that people were using uh, in, our, in our field, basically, you know, Copilot. It would look at all the code in GitHub, all the open source stuff, and you know, it would be able to write or give you prompts for code. And so the easiest way to use it is actually say, you've got a blank um, class, you know, just a blank file. And at the top, you just put some um, comments about what you wanted to do. You know, this is what you should be doing anyway. You should be commenting your code and saying, you know, this is a class that does I don't know, 
pulls a gene and then the gene uh, metadata and then it does these things to the gene. And then you put that context there and then that means that it knows what you want to put in the file. And as you start typing, it starts, you know, generating all of the kind of code. And a lot of code that you type is actually boilerplate. You know, it it's mundane, you know, the, the actual hard bit is architecting the whole thing and kind of saying, well, I want this bit here, this bit here, this is how I want them to work. But you have to, you know, actually do a lot of keyboard bashing along the way. And it reduces that level of um, input that you need to do. And it can even guess, you know, you've typed in this variable name and set it here. And well, maybe you want to the next one, the next one, the next one, you know, and it's very good at kind of putting these things together. So it'll, it'll save you a lot of uh, typing and of course a lot of time um, as a result. And also then you can ask it to make tests and uh, you can ask it to document itself. So it's kind of, you know, makes you a powerful, very, very powerful coder and uh, does knock off a lot of time. But you also have a chat interface within, uh, say, BS Code, just like ChatGPT um, on, on the web. And you can type in anything. I use it a lot for, I don't know, I get an error on the command line, I copy and paste it in and it just magically tells me what, what's wrong and it knows which files I've got open and looking at. And so it can suggest things within context. And, and so like the, the, the continuing theme I'm hearing from this thing is it, it's just such a time machine, right? Cause like it, I could see how, or we all know the experience of like trying to staring at the blank uh, terminal there or, or whatever your, your IDE and trying to figure out how do I code this idea in my head? And we would have kind of gone the route of going through Google, figuring out how other people have done it, looking at Stack Overflow, trying to figure out the comments, which is the which is the most appropriate uh, code block template uh, from and how can I best understand it, which may have taken hours. And then you, you go through that iteration cycle of building it, trying to test it out, giving the use cases whole nine yards. Whereas now that just all gets what was once maybe weeks of work and weeks of research and trying to find those ideas is condensed down into minutes. Of and, and, and that being a product and a factor of how well can I just articulate this in natural language of what I want. Um, you know, so the, the skill of, like, as you said, of orchestrating or, or architecting what you're building is still required. So you still need to have the vision and understanding of what you're doing. But the time to product or the time to functional software is just cut down dramatically. You know, and so that 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 is why it becomes such a required tool in everyone's arsenal is because the efficiency is just unmatched. Absolutely. <clears throat> but I guess one thing you do, do need to be aware of is sometimes the results can be too good, particularly if you train your own models. And um, because what you find sometimes is people mix up training and testing data sets and mm. they uh, suddenly, you know, their, their testing data set gives it back hundred percent, you know, accuracy. And it's like, Oh, well, that's amazing. You know, and um, when actually they've just made a fundamental error. So, while there is a lot of models out there, you got to be very careful which ones you use because you don't necessarily know how well they've been trained. Um, and if the people, because the barrier to entry is so low now, the uh, the people behind them, you need to trust what they've done is actually correct and have appropriate training sets as well, um, which are different to, to the testing data sets. And a classic example from our field is um, our view of the paper, which was looking at imputing SNPs in the human genome. Mm. And so they had actually they'd gone and excluded a you know sets of genomes and said okay these are our testing data set, uh, and we won't have those and you know we'll we'll look at what the recall is like and they get a hundred percent 
And the reason was because these sets of genomes they excluded, they were actually tri uh, trios, uh, sort of, you know, mother, father, baby. And so they removed the baby, but not the mother and the father, and they are still in the original uh, training set. And so effectively the same data was there. And because they had fundamentally misunderstood the data set they were working with, and then they got impossibly high accuracy rates for recall, which is not actually real. And so when you see very high rates, you know it's a uh, been error. And, and that's always been this, or at least my understanding of the machine learning problem is like the trust, the testing data sets and training data sets of how these things are built and like sort of over optimizing or, or, or removing uh, critical assumptions uh, in an understanding of the data so that it kind of gets you uh, turning left quickly there. Um, but my understanding though is like whenever you're just at the starter kit level, when you're using things like GPT, Claude, and then Copilot, you might not even really be interfacing with these, these problems immediately, right? Because you're just using the models that are pretty well-trained and curated for just general use cases uh, with GPT and Claude in the natural language conversation. Uh, and then co-pilot in the programming. So when would people start needing to put their, uh, um, be attentive to this conversation of the training data set and this uh, conversation about, you know, egregiously high accurate recall there? Yeah, I guess, um, actually there's, there's an article in the paper just today ah. on a AI for looking at breast cancer mammograms. And so, you know, phenomenally useful, and it's, it's obviously in the medical fields. And they found that actually they trained special models, and the models were better than uh, having two humans, expert uh, consultants, actually look at this stuff. Um, so it's actually, which is phenomenal, you know, because if you can have that double check there, then it reduces workload for the clinicians, or it catches cases that maybe they've missed. Um, and of course, you know, the, the positive outcomes from that are you, uh, you catch uh, cancer earlier, you can treat it. Um, and obviously everyone wins in that case. Um, so that's kind of where you need a specialist um, large language, or not a large language model, but a specialist neural network mm. for this kind of image processing. Um, and you might need more specialist ones, maybe if you're training on your own internal company data. But in that case, it's usually better to build upon what is already there. So you can take these existing open source models and put some stuff on top. Or Amazon are providing services where you can, um, again, do something similar. Because you don't reinvent the wheel. You know, you yeah. it, it, it's a lot of electricity, a lot of money to retrain things from scratch and probably won't be any better than just taking something existing and then adding a bit on top. I, and that that sounds like it's going to be its own sort of uh, thread of conversation of training your own models and, and even the resources that are currently available to folks where they want to start using that more advanced use case. So um, I think that 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 summarizes pretty well in terms of a starter kit, places to to kind of begin the journey of AI integration to bioinformatics practices. You know, I threw that question out to my my small Twitter following there and didn't get much response because I think once you get in terms of a starter kit. Once you have GPT and Claude in terms of the you know text interface, and then you have something like Copilot, that's a pretty strong starting point uh, to integrate these tools for your bioinformatics practices. I don't know if, if there's anything else um, in that framework of for, and then the context of all the things we're talking about in terms of its limitations and prompt writing and things like that. And then you're kind of off to the races. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, will we leave it there, and uh, we'll. 
come on to all those topics next time. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. I think that's good. So uh, we'll see everyone in the next one. <laughs> <laughs>